Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, folks. Al Martin here. Welcome again to Making Data Simple. Uh, you wouldn't believe it today. I'm recording from the office. This is a miracle, uh, but uh, the reason I'm doing that is because nobody else is here. So it's me alone, essentially, in the office, but it's nice to get out of the house every so often. Before I begin, I always want to thank our producers. They do a fantastic job. Kate Main and Steve Templeton work together, and they, they get us great guests, and they do some editing. They do a good job of it. Again, welcome to Making Data Simple. Today, we're going to be speaking with Cactus Rossi, and it's something near and dear to my heart. Price. So I'm going to learn something today. Let me give a little bit of an intro with Cactus, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to him to do it justice. But Cactus is the founder and former CEO of Elephant and Company. I hope I got that right. Yeah. Which is focused on building smarter marketplaces through AI-powered pricing. Cactus has led Elephant to success in working with a you know brilliant set of engineers and marketplace experts to focus on improving pricing, transparency, and the efficiency of the bond market. We're going to be here all day, I think, by the time we're done. <laughs> but uh, more than 30 years in sales, developed an acute sense of how pricing affects the commercial transaction, how to get it right, how to get it wrong, graduate degree in business analytics from NYU, and lives in Salt Lake City. Did I get that right? Yes. All right. Yeah. Now, first thing we we'll start, is Cactus your real name? It's actually my middle name. I do go by it. It's my professional name. It's on my LinkedIn. Anyone uh, that's listening can find me on LinkedIn, Cactus. And Rozzi is R-A-A-Z-I. That's like a movie star name, man. Cactus Rozzi. <laughs> well, I have one son named Darius, and, and I have a newborn son named Winter. So the this wow. thing is with interesting names in the family, yes. Well, look, you got to keep it interesting. My daughter's name is Riley. And my other daughter's name is Gracie, and then I got Allie. But when we had those names, I thought they were unique, but now everybody uses them. So uh, good for you for really uh, pushing the envelope a little bit. So you uh, you know if you're talking about winter, it's either very cold or you know you're talking about your your exactly. son, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> Give us a proper introduction. Yep. I'd like to hear about you know where you came from, what your brand is, and uh, your current focus. Yeah. So it's true that... Uh, the bulk of my career has been in the bond market. I'm still in the bond market. I sold my company Elephant to a, a larger startup called Exos Financial, which is where I'm a partner now. And what we do is we use data analytics to sort of replace the role of human traders in coming up with prices on thousands of bonds. And these prices are live and transactable uh, where we will buy or sell any one of thousands of different bonds all by computer. While that's my day job, that does not have actually a lot to do with the book that we're talking about. The book was an application of analytics around pricing. And I started to think a lot about various forces that are affecting companies, large and small, anything from a sole proprietorship all the way up to a multinational corporation. And one element here is that rise of data analytics and improved data tools and data capabilities, you can now scale your customer engagement down to the level of individual personalization. And this is not necessarily a new topic. If you go to marketing seminars or kind of spend a lot of time with marketing people, they'll talk about uh, personalized marketing campaigns and whatnot. So there's, there's this element of using data analytics uh, to come up with uh, individualized uh, sort of engagement of the customer. Another element is the widespread sort of deflationary uh, price transparency available via the internet. 
And so this is a, an idea where you're getting increasing levels of price competition. Airlines is an obvious example. Hospitality is a, a close second case example. And as you start to go through, though, you realize that so much of commerce is now moving to uh, e-commerce, if you will, or web-based commerce and also mobile commerce. And with the rise of browser extensions, automated coupon searching, you name it, everything out there is sort of diminishing uh, the ability of the actual business to maintain some level of price and to avoid uh, pure price competition. We put this all together with what I do for a, a day job and, and wrote the book. The book's really around using data analytics to uh, understand who your customers are and to differentiate between your better and worse customers, again, through data analytics and to provide your better customers with personalized pricing and the objective function of this is really rather than thinking about revenue maximization in the near term, we're proposing this idea of loyalty maximization over time. And so, you know, there's most of the literature out there and most of the classes that you would take at the graduate or business school level around pricing do away with thinking about the customer as an individual and think about the customer as a homogenous group of people and then think about how do we maximize revenue. And I believe that that approach has not kept pace with the technical uh, innovations on the data analytics side and challenges on the sort of e-commerce transparency side. So we wrote a book about it. How did you get so interested in the book is price, right? Yeah, the book's called Price, uh, Maximizing Customer Loyalty Through Personalized Pricing. It's available on Amazon. Got it, got it. How do you make that transition? How do you go into, you know, driving bonds and whatnot. By the way, I got questions on bonds for you. <laughs> I'm an investor. I need to know what to do, man. Help me. <laughs> but, but on top of that, I mean, how do you make that connection and then go straight into uh, pricing? It's an interesting question. I felt it was a topic that I could address well. And based on the reviews uh, that I've received, it seems like I've done an okay job of that. This is a topic that most businesses need help with. I've been involved in operating committees and management committees of global businesses. And, and then I'm close to people in a variety of industries, hospitality industry, services industries, where you know, regardless of the size of the business, pricing tends to be somewhat of a ad hoc process, typically by domain experts. So we could use rock concerts as an example. You get uh, a group of domain experts who then try to figure out what they're going to charge for perhaps a, a, you know, a new startup rock festival or you know, a pop music festival or something along those lines. I find that what tends to be lost in translation is really this idea of focusing on the customer and collecting and using data about your customers effectively. So, you know, the more frustrated I got with how pricing was done in the real world and the more knowledge I picked up through pricing bonds, I realized it's not particularly different to go from uh, pricing thousands of bonds to pricing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers. The reason being, of course, that data analytics, generally speaking, can scale almost infinitely. And so I thought to myself, let's write a book. This is a strategy book. It's not a tactical book because obviously the application varies by industry, varies by company size and by geography. But certainly at the level of strategy and thinking about how should I think about my customers? How should I use uh, analytics and how can price improve the loyalty of my better customers. These are topics that I think are worth discussing in any business, regardless of size. What's so interesting to me about price, so I lead cloud and cognitive uh, services delivery. 
Look, I buy into the notion of the challenger sell, if you've ever read that book. In other words, you sell by value or negotiate by value, not price. However, what I do is I find myself, interestingly, I've got to approve a lot of pricing that doesn't fit within uh, normal ranges. So I approve this. And, and often the discussion with whoever the sales rep is, is working with me, it goes like this. They'll say, hey, will you approve this price? You know, I'm dumbing it down, of course. Yeah. And I say, uh, well, look, you're lowered the price, but uh, what happened to the value? Did you decrease the value? Did you remove a service or you just our decrease? Market. Yeah, our margin, what, what our services are worth. And often it could be the latter. And then we get into it. <laughs> we go back and forth. I'd like to hear more about your views on this and how I could do this better. <laughs> to be honest with you, you can help me. We just have a personal conversation here. <laughs> Look, I, I think there's a level of go-to-market that needs to be aligned with the services we provide. It's what I would call behavioral economics, almost. In other words, if we've got value right, we'll get the pricing right. And then we have you know, we, there may be some things we do with pricing to help drive go to market. So the client, you know, is triggered to have FOMO or whatever, and then want to execute now versus wait or otherwise. I mean, what should I be doing differently? Well, I think one of the, the key elements that we mentioned in the book, and I think is important for any sales professional, is to understand that not 100% of the potential customers out there are going to be your better customer or your good customer. It's perfectly fine to walk away from a customer, particularly if you feel confident in your value proposition and in the fact that this is what I would refer to as sort of an equitable or balanced or mutually beneficial proposal. And obviously, price has a lot to do with that. Whatever services are included have a lot to do with that as well. But, you know, you like the package. You think this is the right setup. And if the client is continues to grind you down and to effectively continue to grind your margins, there's a couple of things I'll tell you right off the bat. In my 35 years of sales experience, that's never going to stop. So this is it's going to be a problematic relationship and it's going to take continue to take up an inordinate amount of your time. And second of all, you really do have to be thoughtful around how much energy and effort you want to put into clients who appear to not value your good or your service. I think you have to be ready to say that doesn't work for us and walk away. If the problem is actually that you have competitors, for example, that are offering equivalent or superior goods or services at lower prices, that's a separate conversation that has to right. be handled at the level of management. But if the issue really is we're confident in our offering and we're confident in our pricing and someone continues to grind you down, it's actually, I think, counterproductive to simply try to continuously grind margin. What will likely end up happening is some of the people that work at this company for whom you've made a concession will eventually go work at another company. Um, and it just starts, you know, slow, but gains momentum in terms of grinding your margins over time. But isn't that it, Cactus? I mean, you have got to have the right value proposition. You've got to know what your value proposition is to match that price. And then you're in the driver's seat. If you don't have that knowledge, I would imagine, then you're very vulnerable and uh, it's not going to end well. It's really at the core of sales. I mean, when I started in sales, I was selling skis. And I've sold a lot of different things in my career, obviously the bulk of it bonds, but I, I have bounced all over the place, advertising, women's shoes. I mean, it, I could go on and on, tree care. <laughs> and if you don't understand the customer's problem, then you're not really doing a great job. You'll never have, a, obviously, a 100% omniscient understanding of your customer's problem. But the closer you can get to that perfect state, I think the better position you're in as a salesperson and, frankly, as an organization. Even at the level of what you do, which I realize is a, a really big uh, diversity amongst why your clients 
engage your company and what their needs are. But ultimately, every one of those clients has some sort of a problem. And the more you can understand about that problem, I think the, the higher the likelihood you're going to be able to put something together that works for both of you. But I think to your point, you use the right word. It's a concession. Something gives. If you get your value proposition right, then you're given a clear concession, and that needs to be outlined as, as such. There's nothing worse than walking into to buy a car. You start at 50. You talk about oh, 45. Yeah, you twist their arm. Now they're at 40. Then you then you say, well, oh, last price. Then they're at 35. And they say, okay, we'll go to 30. And then pretty soon you're thinking you've lost all respect to begin with. You're like, well, I walked in here and you were going to try to sell to me for 50. Now we're already down at 30 and I don't even know where your bottom is. I don't even trust you anymore. I'm out. Yeah. So I think it's very important to make sure that you have that bottom line. And I'd like to go in with the bottom line as much as possible. Here's the value. Either take it or leave it. And I presume that's what you mean by, hey, Sometimes you have to fire your customer or at least walk away from a deal if they're not going to meet your price per value. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. If they're not really ready to engage you and, and make this a working business relationship, it's it's questionable as to whether they're really uh, supposed to be considered a customer. There's plenty of other companies or individuals that you can work with out there. I realize that sales growth and top line growth is absolutely the mantra for every business, large or small. And so I don't mean to sound flippant on this topic, but I think that so often an individual salesperson and a sales management organization can get into a, a lot of sturm and drag, twist themselves up into all sorts of knots to accommodate the relatively small percentage of customers that are going to be highly problematic. And sometimes it's better to just sort of cut bait and move on and really spend more of your time and energy with the customers with whom you're doing good business have have a solid working relationship and think about how to grow top line with those customers it's funny um in some of my other data discussions as you know um one of the early applications of data analytics was in churn reduction in uh, the, the mobile phone space and churn in general, mm -hmm. but particularly predictive churn around mobile phones. Those guys did invest a lot of money and we've seen some of this in cable and whatnot. One of my professors at NYU was a real leader in the field. It was always quizzical to me, although I absolutely understand why you need to throw data analytics at the problem of reducing churn. I think it's a noble pursuit, but alongside that, it's also important to recognize that if you're having a four or 5% monthly churn, you do have 95% of your customers that appear to not have a problem with you. What exactly are you doing for that group of individuals? Yeah. And, I, I, and I've always found that to be an interesting question. You know, I've been with T-Mobile for six or seven years. And frankly, uh, so long as I keep paying my bill, I haven't heard a peep out of them. And I would love to hear, know. you know, give some indication that they appreciate the fact that I'm a customer of theirs or some indication that my loyalty is being rewarded and and i don't see it there i don't mean to single out t-mobile there's nothing wrong with that company necessarily compared to at&t or some of the other options out there i'm only pointing out that that companies do uh, end up sometimes inadvertently spending a heap of time and energy a disproportionate amount of time and energy on their less uh, agreeable customers and that's a decision that should be thought about yeah, but I got to believe that they've thought about it. In other words, like going back to your analogy on, you know, I've had the same experience, of course. I think everybody has. Like if you got a cable company, you know, all of a sudden you look back after a couple of years and you find that, you know, it's they've been raising your rates and kind of under the, the covers and you look at it and go, oh, my goodness, what am I paying now? And then so then you call them up and they say, well, are you a new customer? We can give you a discount. And I said, I'm a current customer. I'm a loyal customer. Yeah, well, we got nothing for you. And I actually was on the phone. I won't mention even the, the company. And I said, you mean to tell me you're going to give the same 
services to a new customer for half the price, then you are, for me, at risk of knowing that I can walk and go get it with your competitor at half the price. And this guy on the phone said straight up, uh, sir, I uh, understand your frustration, but uh, that's our strategy. Yep. <laughs> It could hardly be called a strategy, but nevertheless, you know, it is the reality of how they're operating. Yeah, I think that these are some of the perversions that continue to occur in in business. Some of the perversions I've seen around the topic of price uh, were motivating me to write the book where I, you know, think about how did we come up with, even in companies in which I work, how did we come up with a price for that good or service? Of course, in my day job, I have the luxury of operating in a very competitive marketplace where prices are set you know, by human beings and computers all day, every day. So you're relieved of some of that responsibility. But most uh, companies out there, whether it be a restaurant, it could be a clothing manufacturer, you know, you, I use the example of an entertainment venue or uh, rock concerts and whatnot. So often uh, these prices are set either by some rudiment such as a cost plus or just by a sense of what the marketplace will bear, but without any consideration of, well, wait a second, who are our customers specifically? Not, you know, they ha- happen to be men between 18 and 35, but what's this person's name? How how much business has he or she done with us? How long have they been a customer of ours? What should this person get as a price? How do we think about that? Those are important questions now that data analytics is so much more powerful than it was a decade ago. Let me step back for a minute. Let's talk about the book and let's set a little bit of context. When you're composing this book, the whole book is around price. What do you mean or how do you define pricing? Maybe that's pretty fundamental, but I would bet that I'm going to get a different definition than maybe I'm thinking in my head. Many of your listeners probably agree that the concept is some sort of an attempt to maximize revenue within a window, uh, you know, and then you have a lot of different approaches depending on, you know, maybe the good might expire, such as a, an airline seat. Once the plane takes off, you can't sell that seat anymore. So you have that type of an element. A hotel room would be similar in the sense that once an evening passes, you can't sell that. And in other cases, the, the good might be far more persistent. But you're really sort of thinking about revenue maximization. And there's many approaches to pricing in that context. One of my professors at NYU, different, the one I mentioned around churn reduction, foster Provost had, wrote an excellent book on applied data analytics, uh, and another professor, pro, Professor Gustavo Volcano, uh, was one of the leaders in airline pricing back in the late 80s and early 90s and, and established some of those early paradigms. But pricing in general is this notion that we're going to establish a price that's going to be some attempt at a revenue maximization, and, and that will be the price. And, you know, even if you have a sole proprietorship, maybe a restaurant, for example, what should we charge for a bowl of pasta? It's this idea that we have to come up with a price, whether it's methodological, could potentially be data-driven. What is typically missing, though, is this price is for whom? Is this just a generalized price? Can we not come up with something more specific? Is there a way in which we can think about price that actually affects our customer loyalty? We understand how price affects revenue, but could this conversation be a lot richer and deeper now that we have all these data analytic tools? That's actually, I think, a, a discussion that's not being had particularly often these days. And I believe that that's where we will need to go as businesses for partially for the reasons around being proactive towards understanding your customer, accumulating data around your customer, rewarding your better customers, all of that, that kind of side. And then the reactive side is really just around increasing levels of price competition via the Internet. All right. So then taking that concept, how are prices generally set today 
versus the methods you're introducing in your book? I think you've alluded to a few of those, but why don't we just dive right in? You know, uh, I'd say probably the bulk of the real world sets prices in one of uh, three ways. The first one is, uh, I would refer to it as a sort of management-based educated price, meaning we've been in this industry for quite a long time. We understand the competitive landscape and more or less we think this is the right price. That's a sort of a heuristic approach to price, and you'd be surprised at how often that's it's really the uh, the methodological. The second one would be uh, some sort of a margin-based or cost plus or some sort of a multiple of input prices. That tends to happen a lot in the garment industry, or, or that's often how retail used to price the retail price versus the wholesale price. And so this, this, this type of an example of just trying to maintain some sort of a margin. The third would be a, a far more sophisticated approach that tends to be a yield maximization or revenue maximization approach. And that's probably best example of that would be the airline industry. Uh, it's uh, If you look at the, the span of all businesses nationwide, then uh, uh, I would say that sophisticated approach to pricing is definitely in the minority, but we have to acknowledge that it does exist. The missing piece I would assert in the book is that because um, so many of these pricing methodologies sprung up in the pre-big data or pre-data analytics age, and that's not entirely true. There was obviously data back then. Uh, you know, you, you could use Lotus One, Two, Three in the '80s and whatnot. But conceptually, the, the real rise of big data over the past decade, and particularly over the past six or seven years, is a much more recent phenomenon. And a lot of the methodologies around pricing have not really taken advantage of these modern tools to try to add a lot more granularity around pricing and to think a lot more around how pricing can affect your customer's behavior, this specific individual customer's behavior. You, you know, you've seen a lot, Al, um, proxies for price. Uh, a, a great analog example would be w way back when we all used to go to the cafe and they'd have these punch cards where you would sort of your 10th coffee was free, for example, and you'd, you'd get a little punch out or some sort of a stamp on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And the modern equivalent of that is the Starbucks app or whatnot, where you accumulate points and some uh, businesses have established some sort of uh, loyalty points based programs for for buying things from them, whether it's, I don't know, maybe the Gap or who knows what. Those are modern proxies for thinking about uh, differentiating your customer base and rewarding some sort of loyalty. But they're still, I think they still obviously stop short of actually giving the customer a different price. In some cases, a lower price, obviously. In other cases, a higher price, but simply getting access to a good or a service that's in um, very high demand. As you know, uh, for example, you probably have your favorite restaurant and you you probably haven't given it a lot of thought, but it, it's probably true that, that your favorite meal at that restaurant costs the same on a Tuesday evening at 5 or 5.30 when they open as it does on a Friday or Saturday night at 7.30 or 8. And the demand for those that seat and that good is radically different between those two uh, time intervals. Why should it cost the same? So as an example, I'm not necessarily suggesting that personalized pricing is always discounted. The other, the flip side of it is to get access to a good or a service that's scarce uh, or unique in some way, uh, limited editions or, or, you know, things along those lines. So there's a lot of different ways of creating loyalty that don't necessarily always have to be grinding down your margins. But that is probably the, you know, providing a discount to your better customer is probably the most obvious uh, path forward. I got to believe, though, in your research, the loyalty programs, which I find interesting, kind of differs based on whether you have a differentiated product 
or differentiated value or your commodity. By example, like sometimes, you know, when I go to some of these restaurants, I just like the restaurants. And to be honest with you, I appreciate the loyalty card, but I'd go there anyway. They got good food. On the other hand, this weekend, I went to go get some lumber. But the place that I went gave a, um, a rebate. It was kind of cool. I've never seen this done before. Instead of a discount, they gave an in-store rebate. In other words, you buy $100, you get 11% back, but that have to be purchased in-store. But that was a differentiator. So it's a commodity I could get at other places, but I thought, hey, look, I'll take the rebate. Let me ask you something. This restaurant yeah. that you like to go to, what I'm hearing from you is that they actually missed the trick, what would improve your loyalty. This is a great example of needing to understand your customer. What is their problem? How can I, mm-hmm. how can I sort of solve their problem? And that problem could be something very different from just getting a discount. It could be this is a popular restaurant and you have a hard time getting a table on weekends, as an example, it could be some other element that, you know, you have your favorite, who knows, beer or wine, and that's that's the type of premium that they send your way. I also think that in your lumber example, a rebate is great. It's a great way of avoiding advertising a lower price, but these days it would be possible as an example to send you a push notification through an app or an email or a myriad of other ways of notifying you that the lumber that you personally will get an 11% lower cost on the lumber that you are looking for. That is very doable these days. And so that that's an example of, you know, what I think is what companies should be striving for is to go get closer to their customer through data analytics. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You talk about the first one, rather than having a, like a, a punch card, and this is a pretty nice restaurant. It's hard to get there on the weekends. So, if they were to offer me a table, they could increase my frequency of visiting yeah. or they could tailor, you know, if they knew what I liked and they should know what I like because <laughs> I've been there enough that they could, you know, make some kind of offer on a, you know, a weekday or something like that gets me in there again more frequently. But otherwise I would pay the price. And yeah. you're right. I don't know that a lot of these places use the, uh, you know, the technology that they have today at their disposal. It's so bad out there. I mean, if you really sat and spent some time with, for example, people who run hotels and asked them, how do you track the people that stay with you regularly? How do you reward them? How do you think about the other hotels in the area and and what your competition is and whatnot? It's so rudimentary. Same with restaurants, very rudimentary. As an example, if you maintain a increasingly loyal client base at your restaurant, you then have a increasing likelihood of understanding what people are going to order. People generally tend to order either the same thing or similar things at restaurants. And through that process, you can then go around having a much better sense of what you should be ordering and reduce your um, food uh, spoilage or your food losses. Uh, it goes on and on. And, and I, I don't know this for a fact. I'm not in the restaurant business. I know this from my friends who are, are in the restaurant business and have we've had extensive discussions around what data and analytics they're receiving from their POS systems and various other systems. Why are they not integrated and why can't they use customer data more effectively to try to run their business more effectively? I'm curious as to think or to know what you what pricing models you think work best. Uh, but I presume that the one that's going to be above all is just personalized pricing. So let's dive into personalized pricing real quick. What or how is should technology in your mind be used to personalize pricing Then I'm going to ask you a follow-on question. Is there, I think there could be consumer skepticism on companies gathering data about them. Is that 
creating some resistance, driving personalized pricing, or do you think they're just not with the game? How do you start? I mean, yeah. you talk about just just starting. I got it. But what yeah. technology would you use? How would you how would you personalize pricing? So the first thing I would say is think about the analog pieces of information that your business rightfully collects but does not store, and that has everything to do with what this person's name is. Uh, it could be what time of day and which days of the week they tend to frequent you, uh, what they order, obviously, anything that your server would actually naturally through the course of their traditional business activities. I'm using this as an example in the restaurant industry, but you you can think about this in any industry. Think about what information you are expected to know uh, in the analog world and think about digitizing that information. That would be a great first step. You obliquely mentioned sort of people get uncomfortable with data collection, but I, I think that's a slightly separate topic. All of us expect to reveal a certain amount of data in our commercial transactions. And if that data is retained rather than lost because it's in a salesperson's you know, handwritten notebook, uh, I don't think that that's generally something that makes people uncomfortable. I think what makes people uncomfortable is, is going out to third parties, in some cases, somewhat shady third parties, to get additional information about people that, that was never really part of the discussion. As an example, if you uh, go to a lumber yard and buy lumber, I don't think you'd be upset that they know that you bought six two by fours last week, you'd probably be a little less comfortable if they knew where you lived and what your kids' names were. A lot of that information is unfortunately available out there due to our lax data privacy laws. But the point is that I'm not in any way uh, proposing uh, any sort of shadowy data analytics here. I'm simply saying keep track of who this person is with whom you've just done business and other variables uh, that you think are going to be useful in your data analytics, such as, as an example, time of day or what did they purchase or various other bits and pieces that are part of the commercial transaction. That's the first thing I would say. And we actually talk about this in the book. That's a great way of getting started. From there, you delve into starting to use rudimentary data analytics, regressions and various other straightforward uh, data analytic techniques to figure out how do we think about this base of customers and what their behavior is? What kind of correlations can we start to uh, come up with? Or what does our customer base look like? Is it homogenous? If it's not homogenous, in what ways is it in fact not homogenous? Are there different types of customers that cluster nicely? And so a lot of this through basic data, either, as I mentioned, regressions or visualizations or other relatively rudimentary analytic tools that are available to anyone on Coursera uh, allows you to start to understand much better what this customers look like, uh, whether there's any differentiation amongst them. If so, do any of these customers line up much more nicely with the type of customers that you are that you think are consistent with your business's best success? From there, it becomes a question of understanding these customers' needs and perhaps thinking about pricing as a way of encouraging the better customers, encouraging the loyalty of the customers that you want to turn into your most loyal customers regardless of your industry. I have a lot of examples in the book, all sorts of different businesses. My mom's a hairstylist, so we use examples of hairstyling and restaurants and and airlines and hospitality and concert uh, tickets. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of reduce cases. It's not prescriptive in the sense that there's not a bunch of equations and, and whatnot. That would be, I think, beyond the scope of the book. And frankly, it's, it's something much more specific to what you'd, you'd want to hire some people that are knowledgeable in the space. But I do think the discussion around, and I appreciate you bringing it up, just what information should I be collecting and how should I be collecting it? That's a very important first step. And the answer to that is 
everything that you know about your customer in the analog world, I think is fair game to be digitized and then used for analytics. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, Cactus Rossi, the man with the golden name. Thank you for being here with us today, talking to us about data, how it helps drive pricing and different strategies therein. Everybody needs to go out and get Price, the book by Cactus Rossi. Thanks, Al. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Greatly. You know, my pleasure. And for the listeners, as always, I will see you on the podcast. Hey, hit me on almartintalksdata at gmail.com for any uh, content information, or if you'd like to be a guest, I'd appreciate it. Love to hear from you. Thank you and talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.